the Pew Bibles in front of you, you'll find it on page 1152. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, from verse 2 and following. Sorry, from verse 17 and following. And before we read, let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your uh, glorious word, a word that reveals yourself to us in wonderful ways, your word which gives light to our eyes and wisdom for life. And we praise you that it points to, above all, Christ, who is our wisdom. We pray that you would bless us as we study it tonight and think it through and uh, help us to apply it in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a passage uh, following on from last week's where we're looking at right uh, and orderly worship. And Paul wants to talk to the Corinthian church and us tonight about the Lord's Supper. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves... We would not come come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Amen. And this is God's word. 
Well, you don't need to be a big fan of rugby to know that in the international game, some of the fiercest rivalries exist. We see this certainly in the Six Nations tournament. We certainly see it, I think, most of all in the games between the home nations of Scotland, England, Ireland, and Wales, even. Now, in any match, such as those we see in the Six Nations Championships, both teams really do everything they can to almost preserve the, the honor of their national identities. They stand there and sing their national anthems. They wear their team colors proudly. They pass the ball to their own players, except maybe for Scotland occasionally. They tackle their opposite numbers. They work together on the basis of their national identity. But once in a while, the British Lions are formed. A team made up of players, if we can have the next slide, from player, made up of players from those four countries. And when these guys play for the Lions, they take off their national colors and they wear the same strip. When they play for the Lions, they're no longer pitted against each other. They're on the same team, working together for the very same goal. Those who were once competitively engaged against each other now collaboratively joined with one another for the same purpose, winning. Now, people who were once divided by their differences but now united in their allegiances like we see from those players from the home nations who play for the Lions, in my book, provide a great illustration of what happens when a church is formed. When we, who through faith in Jesus Christ, lay aside our individual differences, we take off the strip that defines us, whatever cultural indicator or preference or bias or prejudice that may be, and we put on the same strip, if you like, as everyone else in the church, we become part of the same team, working towards that same great goal, the praise of his glorious grace and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. When we put our faith in Christ, it is no, it's not simply an individualistic thing. No, we are united to one another. We're formed into a new family. We are profoundly bound together in Christ. And in the church, we should not see those things that sadly divide people, like ethnicity, race, social class, and so on. All of these dividing walls, if you like to use the language of Ephesians 2, are removed. They're bulldozed. There is no place for these in the life of a church. But the problem that we see when we read the book of Corinthians is that these dividing walls are still standing if not being reinforced by the behavior of those in that church. That's why Paul says, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. That's why Paul scolds them in saying, 
Your meetings do more harm than good. It would have been better for you to stay at home. In verses 17 to 22, you see that they are well and truly divided. And Paul focuses our attention on the division that, that is prevalent when it comes to sharing in a meal together, called a meal that's called the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. It was customary for Christians to come together in those days, as it is today, not just to hear the Word of God preached and to pray together and sing songs together, but to share in what is a memorial meal. Back then, they celebrated it, not quite like what we do with our little bits of bread and our little tiny cups, but more as, in the, as part of a, a bigger fellowship meal, a meal of the family, the church. And as part of that meal, they would share bread and wine in remembrance of Christ and as an expression of their oneness. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, if you have a quick look back at there, Paul describes their eating. He's saying, I don't want you to eat with demons. I don't want you to eat in idle temples. But I want you to remember this. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we are all partakers of one loaf. Okay, so he's saying, you eat together of the one loaf, you are together. The problem is the church in Corinth, the problem for the church in Corinth, as we have said many, many times along the road, is that there's too much of Corinth in the church. Cultural practices had made their way into this church family, including societal divisions, prejudices and preferences. Paul says, yes, there are divisions among you in verse 18. In verse 19, he calls them differences. What's going on? Well, there's a first century historian called Plutarch, a Greco-Roman guy who wrote down, a Greek guy, uh, who wrote down a, a lot about what happened in the first century Greco-Roman Empire. He says that it was a done thing to seat the guests, to start the meal, and distribute the food in such a way that it reflected the pecking order of society. And according to verse 21, it looks like that pecking order has made its way into the church. Each one goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. So the upper classes, we understand from that time, were more flexible. They weren't really working in particular. They often employed people to do their work for them. They had more flexibility when it came to their availability. So they could gather for when the church is going to gather for their service, if you like, whenever they wanted. But the, those who are of the working class, servants, even slaves, didn't get away from their work until later. For these guys, to leave your rich friends waiting, especially when you're waiting for someone for, from a, a poorer background, was an affront to the rich. And so going ahead with their feast and eating the best of the food and having their fill was just what they did. But when the poorer members arrived in from work, what do you think they saw? Well, they saw the scraps of the buffet. You know those little cheese and pineapple things that are left that nobody likes. And they saw their fellow members drunk. Isn't that incredible? Now, social differences will always exist in the world. Let's face it, okay? There's a reality check here. I don't think Paul's concerned about that. I think he's concerned that 
church members allow these societal differences to affect how people relate to one another, particularly within the body of Christ that is a local church. Scandalous. There was discrimination taking place at the Lord's Supper. That very meal that was designed to symbolize their unity with Christ and with one another. It was scandalous. To the point that Paul could essentially say to them, you don't love the church. You despise the church. Now, how do you think they would have responded to that? They're like, well, well, we love the church. That's why we're coming along. That's why we're sharing this meal. They probably didn't get it. They probably didn't realize that simply by their behavior, by the fact that they were not waiting, by the fact that they were applying cultural prejudices in the life of the local church, they were effectively saying, we despise the church. They're also saying, you don't meet to remember Christ. You meet to indulge yourselves. These gatherings were so wrong that Paul says in verse 17, it would have been better for them to have stayed at home. In verse 20, saying their behavior was so shocking that their meal could not even be recognized as anything Jesus would recognize. It is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Don't kid yourself. Now, the behavior of some of the members then in the church in Corinth is effectively showing that their whole identity and their lives have not been transformed and changed by the gospel as they should be. And the question for us at the start of this sermon is really, are we in danger of making some of the same mistakes? Well, we might say, in response to the scenario here, not precisely. We're not participating in a full meal like they did back then, whenever we gather for communion. We're all served the same amount of bread, that little square. We're all served the same amount of grape juice. And we're all served all at the same time. Um, it doesn't look particularly indulgent whenever we do it, it has to be said. And I think it would be pretty amazing if anyone did get tipsy even on that uh, grape juice. But still, we can dishonor the Lord's table. When we gather for communion, when we harbor discrimination against others on account of social ethnic, whatever kind of prejudice we want to hold. Now, how do we do that? Well, it may be the case that perhaps in a careless application of the gospel or almost with a thoughtlessness, it may be that a new member at church is more likely to be welcomed with extra special effort if they are more like us. Maybe they would be more quickly integrated into the life of the church. But what about those who are not like us is a challenge for us to think about. Are they on the receiving end of our subtle discrimination and left unnoticed, uninvited, isolated? What would we do well to remember? Well, the very things that Paul seeks to remind the Corinthians of. Since they seem so forgetful of all that Paul has taught 
And of all that the gospel wins for believers, indeed what this celebratory meal in the Lord's Supper is all about, Paul sees the need to just go back to basics. He takes them, as he often does in the book of 1 Corinthians, again, right to the heart of the gospel. And in verses 23 to 26, he offers this great, great reminder of this institution, this tradition that Jesus set in place, that he ordained and instituted for his church to celebrate so that we would not forget but remember the Lord's Supper. Communion. It's all about remembrance. Remembering the historical facts of the death of Jesus, as we see in verses 23 to 25. Fascinating that, isn't it? The gospel is rooted in historical fact. It happened back then on a designated night. The Lord's Supper, this remembrance, when we take bread and wine together, it takes us back to an upper room and a reminder of the fact that Jesus was betrayed. We're taken back to that upper room to see Jesus and his disciples sharing in this traditional Passover meal when they remembered, according to Jewish law, the Passover. The fact that on account of the shed blood of a lamb, the people were freed from judgment And as a result, released from the oppression of Egypt, free to live for and worship God. But Jesus takes this Passover meal and transforms it. He takes this bread as a symbol of his body and he breaks it. He took this cup as a a symbol of his blood and said it was the blood of a new covenant. We read from Jeremiah 31 earlier on. With those simple words, Jesus just just opens up for us this whole scope of scripture saying this is what this means now is the time this is the new covenant it will be as the old covenant was ratified through sacrifice but it won't be the blood of any animal he says it'll be my blood and as a result of his blood being shed his body being broken the Spirit of God would be poured out on all who put their faith and trust in Him. The law of God written on their hearts, the circumcision of the flesh, which is a mark of the old covenant, would be replaced by a circumcision of the heart, that is, faith. And we know, through faith, the great benefit, the promise of Almighty God for this new covenant, I will forgive. I will forgive their wickedness. And he will do his own remembering. And I will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness of wickedness. The doing away of all sin. Isn't that what we all need? I needed that. And this blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that he points us to through the symbol of this this cup. This fruit of the vine that we will drink. Seals for us this new promise from God, the God who will never break a promise. Jesus' death seals it. The simple food and drink, bread and wine, help us to recall it. 
and faith is strengthened. Hearts are warm with affection towards God when we remember the lamb died instead of us. Not the lamb, lamb, but Jesus the lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of our world. We not only remember those historical facts, we take into account the the remembrance of these spiritual facts of what Christ's death wins for all who believe. Jesus says, this is my body in verse 24, which is for you. You. It's something that we can personally benefit from and collectively gather together to remind people of these benefits. We benefit from this sacrifice to the point that we can say through faith we have participated in his death. His death is my death. We can say with Paul in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. We are so united to Christ that we recall all the benefits of faith, the things that Christ has purchased for us when he laid down his life for us on the cross. By his descent to earth, he has prepared for us an ascent to heaven. By receiving our spiritual poverty into himself, he transfers heavenly riches to us. By taking the weight of our sinfulness on himself and doing away with it, he closes in his righteousness for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Oh, we are prone to forget, aren't we? We are prone to forget. I don't know about you, but I walk up the stairs and I forget what I went up there for. You know, I'm 34 and I'm having senior moments. That's alarming. We forget lots of different things. We're prone to forget. That's why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. We're prone to forget. So he gives us these tangible symbols of of everyday things that will come across regularly, bread and wine. And he says, remember, this is my body for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do you not find your hearts lifted with gratitude to God when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? I wish we had it tonight. I wish we had it tonight. The reminder, the regular reminder that we don't deserve to come, but, but come at his invitation to receive his grace and mercy. We, we do, we come. I love it. I love the reminder of it. We need the reminder of it. We're prone to forget Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, and by remembering we are drawn nearer to Christ in gratitude than in love. But not only that, we're drawn nearer to each other. All who trust in Christ are united with him, and therefore with everyone else who's joined to him. And when we stand there at the cross, when we are taking the Lord's Supper together, how can we play power in politics and church life? When we remember Jesus and his death, how can we be unconcerned about sin and the need to confess it and repent of it when we remember Jesus and his death? How can we be unconcerned about evangelism and those who don't know Jesus and 
when we remember Jesus and his death. Indeed, that's what Paul goes on to say. It's not just about remembering all the benefits that are won for us through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, through his body broken, through his blood shed. We proclaim. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this word proclaim, this, get this, this is Paul's regular word for preaching, for heralding, uh, preaching, declaring. What's he trying to say? Well, he is saying that this Lord's Supper, this memorial meal of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we take it together as a church, it transforms its participants into preachers. How? Well, like us, the Apostle Paul anticipated having non-Christians, those who have not yet professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, present at their meetings. We'll see that in verses, uh, in chapters 12 to 14, actually. And this New Testament church and, and us, we should be interested in having non-Christians present at each and every one of our meetings. And when we share then in the Lord's Supper together, it is a profound proclamation of the fact that we have benefited from Christ's work through faith. And by eating together, we share in that together. The Lord's Supper is for believers. So that when those who do not know Jesus are present with us, and they are very, very welcome and should not be made to feel unwelcome among us. But that should be a time that is different for them. Often when we leave communion, we, we say things like, oh, if this is your first time in church, you might find this a little bit strange. We're going to take a bit of bread and wine and we're going to eat it and drink it together. Why? Because Jesus told us to, to remember him. The most important thing about him is death, the gospel. And we sometimes say, if you're here, you're not a Christian, you're very, very welcome, but this, this part is, is not for you. In fact, the Bible often tells us that it's bad for you to participate in this because Essentially, you're said to be drinking judgment on yourself. We take it because we need God's forgiveness. And we want to encourage you to reflect on the gospel so that you too can receive the same forgiveness. And I want to say tonight, if there is anyone here tonight who's not a Christian, we are really glad you're here. We expect you to be here and in the months and years to come, many others to come into our service who are not Christians. You're very welcome. It might seem a bit strange to you, but you are welcome to come and join us for any and every service. But we want you to realize that it's the most loving thing that we can do to proclaim Christ's death to you, even if it means we don't allow you to take a piece of bread and drink from one of the cups. We want you to see, though, that you can become a participant. We want to see, though, that, that faith in Christ is open to you and you're invited to come when you come confessing your sin and when you come trusting that when Jesus died on that cross, the death he died was your death. You can come when you trust 
that he paid the price for your sin so that you could have forgiveness with God and be made right with him. And even now, the invitation for you is to turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. And you will receive the gift of eternal life. The joy of being united to him. Of knowing all the benefits of knowing him. And the joy of being united to his people together. I pray you would. By eating, we remember his death. By eating, we remember to, we, we proclaim his death and we do it until he comes. And when he comes, what will he bring? He has supper. <laughs> a supper. A proper supper. A feast beyond anything that you have feasted upon today. The wedding supper of the Lamb. The Lord's supper that we take together as the starter. Mere canopies of future bliss. So what should we do then if there is disunity in the church? And if we are called to remember the gospel, what it wins for us and how it unites us to Christ and how it unites us to one another, what should we do? Well, we should examine ourselves. That's what verses 27 to 32 say. A man ought to examine himself so that we won't be guilty of sinning against, first of all, the body and blood of Christ. When you take the Lord's Supper and yet harboring such discrimination or unrepentant sin in your life, you can place yourself not in the company of those who are sharing in the benefits of his death, but in the company of those who are responsible for his death. The call then is obviously to repent. But we, we're not just guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Jesus, we're guilty of sinning against the body of Christ as well. Now, body here, I don't think, refers to the physical body of Christ here. I think it's referring to the church. I think this is asking members of the church to evaluate their treatment of others by the standard even of Christ's sacrificial love. We're supposed to love one another as he loved us. And if we're not doing that, we may be guilty of sin. So in both of those cases, Paul appeals to them in verse 28, examine yourselves. Now, I have to say, these Paul's words here are not designed to provoke some kind of unhealthy search for some kind of sufficient worthiness, like we need to try and build that level up so that we can come. No, that's not true. It's, it's true to say we're not worthy. That's why Christ died. But there can be a, a, an unworthy manner of approaching the Lord's Supper, Paul is saying. What does that look like in the context? Well, to remember that he died to forgive me for my sins, like hatred and self-centeredness, when in fact I am loving being self-centered. Well, that may be an approach in an unworthy manner. If pride shows up in the Lord's Supper, Paul is saying, how dare you take that cup because you're a walking contradiction of what this meal represents. In verse 19, he can, he can say, you show yourself to be unapproved. Verse 22, you show yourself to despise the church of God. 
Verse 27, you show yourself to profane the body and blood of Jesus. And verse 29, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. It's supposed to feel weighty, friends. We come in dependence upon his grace. We come as repentant sinners expecting to receive grace. But remember, Paul is addressing this church on account of the fact that they're coming saying, yeah, we love to come and eat the Lord's Supper together, while all the while they're not waiting for the poorer members. They're harboring discrimination and prejudice. And Paul says the result is judgment. Verse 30 is difficult, isn't it? That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. I have to address this or you'll just all ask me at the door what that means. Paul is warning us that if people come to the Lord's Supper with a callous or perhaps a careless attitude where the death of Jesus Christ is treated lightly and the church of Jesus Christ is treated unlovingly, it may be the case that for a time, he takes you out of the game. Not because of wrath, it's not that kind of judgment, but because of discipline. I think it's a reminder of what we saw in 1 Corinthians 10, of the, the body strewn in the desert. And it's a lesson to awaken us up. It's the, the warning of judgment to awaken us. We don't find this comfortable. But we see the reason. God does not want his people to be condemned with the world. That's what it says at the end of verse 22. So it seems Paul is teaching that he may invoke temporal judgment to clean up his church. Now, it has to be said, there is no direct link between those who sin in a particular way and a particular illness or, or death, etc. Some may sin and it may lead to death as a natural consequence of their sin. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. But this is why Paul is saying it is better for some to stay at home. I think he's indicting those who profess to be Christians, but who, in fact, who are not. It's complicated. But how do we apply this? How is Paul applying this and summing this all up in this whole scenario? Because often what we do, don't we? We take these, these verses and we remember them at certain times, particularly around the Lord's table. We forget the context. We could have another series where we might look in particular at the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper and, and draw out other rich truths and right truths that are contained within this. But it's in the context of this discrimination, this unloving church, discriminatory church. In verse 33 to 34, here we see what they should be. United. Working together, not separate like the home nations, fiercely competitive against each other, but united like the lions, collaborating with one another, working towards the same goal, the praise of his glorious grace and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Therefore, verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. It's as simple as that for Paul. Wait for each other. In other words, remember your togetherness, your unity. Demonstrate your togetherness. Demonstrate your simple awareness of others. Show the world that this new family of believers 
are able to love their brothers and sisters in Christ so much so that they would be willing to be ridiculed by people in their families, by people in that society, should they resolve to uphold this Christian virtue of love. Whether they're MPs or toilet cleaners, professionals or laborers, British or Asian, we are all one in Christ and there is no place for discrimination in the Lord's church. And too often it's this, it's our lack of love for one another based on preferences or culturally conditioned prejudices that create divisions within the church and repel the watching world. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, had said, divisions in the church always breeds atheism in the world. But if we live out the implications of who we are in Christ, then our love would compel people to come. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, my followers. If you what? Hate, discriminate, love one another. Love one another. I love that we have people from every different race here. Not every different race. That would be cool. That would be heaven. Uh, it's coming. Uh, I, I love the fact that we have people from so many different backgrounds. So many different nations represented. People from different social classes, although I do believe we could do better at welcoming the poor through our doors. But we must be careful, even in our church, with lots of different people in it, that we're not guilty of some kind of subtle discrimination or even some kind of organizational segregation. Where although we gather together on Sundays and take the Lord's Supper together, we may throughout the week participate in the kind of social gatherings or church gatherings that, that keep people of different ages or people of different races or people of different backgrounds apart. I think it's easy to do that. Sometimes it seems to be the thing that simply works best, let's face it. Sometimes it's beneficial to do that, but we must be careful not to let it create the kind of divisions that we see in Corinth. Very careful about that. And we need to remember that we are united as one. Called by God to be Charlotte Chapel, a local church that is a culturally distinct community of love. A community of love, a people of Christ who remember the very prayer of Christ that we may be brought to complete unity and to remember the reason for it to let the world know that you sent me, is what he said. To let the world know that you sent me. So, we are not like those home nations, fiercely and competitively engaged against one another. We're like the lions, collaboratively working together for the praise of his glorious grace and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Therefore, let there be no discrimination in this church today or any day.
to come. And let us proclaim with thankfulness that we are united to Christ and united to one another through faith in Christ every week. And remember it especially so. Those great benefits when we gather together to share in that very special meal together. The Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Our Father,